Well, it's good to be with you all again this Lord's Day today. And uh, last time I think we had the exact same weather, so it's a little bit uh, twilight zone for me being here again. And you know, it's just like I look out and I think oh, it feels exactly the same as a month and a half ago. So, but it's good to be here again. Um, our text this morning. Sam, if I break this, I for, uh, please forgive me. It's okay. There's a uh, knob on the side. Oh. Okay, good. I'm, my music uh, stand skills are not as <coughs> adequate as I wished. But um, our text this morning comes from James chapter one. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. And uh, it's my custom, uh, in our, the church I come from, our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. And this is uh, James chapter 1. It will be in verse 9 and going to verse 18 of James chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, in this time that we gather to hear your word, we pray that you would bless us by your Holy Spirit. We do not have the strength in ourselves to make this word of yours fruitful in our lives, so we depend on your Holy Spirit to apply it, to illumine our hearts, and that we may live in obedience to you and proclaim your gospel in this world. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't know if many of you are, have been in the situation that I feel like I'm starting to enter into. Maybe you're already here. And maybe you've seen people expressing this in various venues online or getting together with other friends and family, but it's COVID fatigue. You think, are we really going to talk about COVID again? Or the politics fatigue. It seems like every time we turn around, there's some new political controversy. And we are finding ourselves in this place where we just think, I am tired. Well, I'm here to disappoint you guys. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, it's one reason why I wanted to preach this passage this morning, uh, almost afternoon now, is I think it helps us in this time. It seems like every time we turn around, there's some new thing that's being thrust into our lives that is just hard. We think, how do we navigate this? 
because we think it affects we, it affects us personally with the COVID restrictions and then it affects the relations that, relationships that we have with the friends and family of how do we discuss these things with people or not discuss them and I think for so many of us it's this difficult time and James starts his passage off here about uh, count it all joy in verse 2 when you face trials of various kinds and so he's bringing us further into this process of the trials that we meet in this life and the fatigue that we begin to feel and the endurance that he encourages us into so I think that's a, a good place for us to think about where we are and how this scripture can apply to us in our lives today. Um, I think it's very simple, the message that James has for us all. It's, I, I think he's telling us that we're all poor, we're all weak, but God is good. He's good to all of us. And there's a way that James wants to show this particularly to all of us. It's something we all know. But he wants to show it in another little facet for us all. And he starts this passage in a very interesting way. And that's how we'll um, just back up for a moment. That's how we'll look at this passage. We're all poor. We're all weak. But God is good. Those are our points for this morning. And so we look at his beginning here, that we're poor. How does he start this? And he says, bless, or, sorry, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Another way you could translate this word lowly is poor. And it's this thing that's kind of an uh, opposite of what we would expect. A poor person boasting in his exaltation, boasting in, his, in what the circumstances are of his life right now, that's completely the opposite of what we would expect for a poor person to do. We, they might say, I boast in something else outside of me. But James here is telling us, no, there's something about your life right now, you, that you can boast in. See, for poor people, they lament because they don't have anything, or they're lacking the resources to provide for themselves, the things that they need. Food, shelter, health. Listen to how Proverbs describes how the poor speak about their lives. It says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Or the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. They've got no financial well-being to deliver themselves, and they're completely at the mercy of others. And James is telling them to boast, to be proud in this. It's the opposite of what we would think. So what is this position that they have? Why is it that they can boast in this circumstance? The high position that the, boast ha that the poor have is that they're more dependent upon God. James, in chapter 2, he goes on and says this, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. James is showing us is, if you're poor, you are rich in something that the rich people in this world may not have. Actually, most likely don't have in the way that you do. God has placed them in a position of dependence 
where they have to look to him for everything, all of their resources. They're rich in faith. And that's what James wants us to see about these poor people and wants us to reflect upon for ourselves. Do we depend upon God like these poor people have to day and night? They use entreaties. That's their only resource is to cry out for help. And this is the position of honor in God's kingdom. It's the antithesis of what we see in our world. It's the, the opposite of how our world design, uh, describes the honored life, the blessed life. And James is showing, no, the blessed life is somebody who is rich in faith and dependence upon God for all that they need. But James turns to the rich and flips the situation on its head. And he says to the rich, and the rich boast in his humiliation. How are the rich in a low position? Well, it's quite simple if you think about the poor. They depend in faith upon God to provide for everything that they need. The rich so often, they don't turn to God for their needs because they think, I have the resources in myself to provide for my needs. I don't need to ask God to provide for this because I already have it. I have a good paying job. I have health care. I have these friends that surround me. This is what Proverbs 14.20 says. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Why, why exactly do I need God? Or why do I need to go in prayer to God? Because I have everything I need. I have everything taken, taken care of. James calls this a state of humiliation. Their lives are filled with the very things that our hearts set their hope and joy on. He says, this is a state of humiliation. You need to look to God. You need to trust in Him because this is, as James describes, like a flower of the grass. Not just the resources you have, but you yourself, rich man, will fade away like this grass. It withers. It falls away, and its beauty perishes. And the question is, what is left at the end of that? James is showing us all how <coughs> transient this life is. The hope that we set on this life, and the hope that the rich people in this world set their hope set in this life. Proverbs, again, tells us, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish <coughs> like a green leaf. Or, the rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And lastly, riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? And I think this is what James wants us to see, is that we're all poor. At the end of the day, we're all poor. And the question is, how do you see yourself? How do you see your life in this world? It's imperative that we understand this because as we encounter all the trials in this life, the question is, what is the resource that we're turning to? And that's going to dictate how we see this passage go. We need to see that we're all in this low estate. Whether we are actually poor, as the world defines it, 
or we're poor in faith. James is calling out the callousness of our hearts and saying, no, look to God. Trust in Him. Depend on Him for everything. Ultimately, it's God who is the one who bestows all the goodness. And He knows that for the poor, He has given them His kingdom. The poor have freely received what they could never earn. And the rich who trust in Christ have also freely received something they could never buy. Money does not profit here. At the end of the day, we can say with what Scripture tells us in uh, Jeremiah, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And that is what James is driving all of us to, that what we boast in is in the God who is our provider, whether we're poor or whether we're rich, to look to Him in faith, to provide for everything we need. And that leads us to our second point, where James goes next, that we are all weak. See, after James goes out and declares to the, to the rich people, you're all going to fade away, even the rich. The, the rich, it's all going to go away no matter what. And then you think, Okay, well, that's life. It's just, it's transient. It's hard. It, it doesn't seem to endure. And he addresses this right, right, at, right next. And he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I think lying behind that statement is this truth that we're weak. He wouldn't have to say that if we were strong. You don't have to tell strong people, be strong. You just say, be yourself. But he says, no, I'm giving you, I'm setting forth this blessing that stands out for those who endure through trials. He wants to stir up our hearts because we're weak. We struggle. In the midst of temptations of this world and its riches, or the struggles that we have in this life, coronavirus, politics, you name it, our health struggles, all the things that come down upon us, we want to turn and set our affections on something else for deliverance. And Paul or James here is saying, there's a blessing for those who endure. And there's two wonderful blessings that come for those who endure. He says, one, that you'll become approved. Now our ESV translation says that you'll stand the test <coughs> Stand the test, or in another way, literally, is become approved. You'll be approved. That's the point of standing a test, so that when you're at the end, they can say, you passed. You made it through. And that's the approval of our Heavenly Father, who will one day say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You passed. You made it through. And we've made it through to what? And the second blessing is, you've passed the test, and you will receive the crown of life. What is this crown of life? 
I think quite simply, it's nothing other than the confirmation of righteousness, the confirmed blessedness and holiness that we will have one day in heaven with God our Father. That's that crown of life where everything is perfect. There's no struggle. There's no failure. There's no weakness left in us. And our God says, this is yours. This crown now belongs to you. You'll be happy and joyous in God for all eternity. And he adds this phrase, receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What does this mean? Because it sounds like works righteousness here. God's going to give you this crown if you love him and try really hard. I think that's how we hear this passage. Does this mean that we're going to be saved by our works by trying really hard and God's going to say, I'm waiting to see how you do and if you do well at the end you're going to make it through and I'll give you this crown. Because I think that's kind of how we hear this. As one modern preacher likes to say, when you do your part God will do his part. I don't think that is at all what James is saying here. We are given eternal life because we trust in Jesus. James had just been calling us to faith and saying that it is faith is what defines the blessed life, defines the boasting life. And we love the Lord because he has given this to us. It's not based upon our love. It's based upon God's love. And God wants to show that it is a symbol of his rewarding those who love him. I want to show that I actually do reward those who love me. I'm going to give it to those who trust me, but I want to strengthen your faith even more by showing you that I'm going to reward you. It's not a way to beat us down to make us feel bad for ourselves. It's a way of encouragement and strength in the midst of our trials to say, look, God even rewards those who pursue and seek after him. He gives a blessing. And it's hope. I think so often we fall short of this. We feel that there is, we don't live up to this love. Maybe even worse than this, there's something that James points out that we do in the midst of this. When we fail, we want to blame. We say, okay, Lord, I know that you call us, you say there's a blessing for those who love you, but I failed. You know what? I, I, it's not. It's not really my fault that I did this. Because this is what James says: God holds out this promise for those who love Him, and then He turns and says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God." Why would somebody say this? Why would a Christian say this? Even? Why would we say I'm being tempted by God? So let's give it a, a, an example. I'm sure many of us are aware of. How many times have you done something and your spouse or significant other or family member said to you or you said to them, if you didn't leave that out, I wouldn't have done that. You know, if you didn't leave out that thing laying around the floor, I wouldn't have stepped on that and yelled at you. It's your fault. My yelling at you, my response to you, that's your fault. We want to shift the blame away from us. But what James shows us is that our hearts do something even more sinister than this. We want to blame God for the trials and failures that we go through. 
it's God who's doing this to me. This is God's fault that I'm doing, that I'm going through these trials. We don't want to be held responsible for our sin. We don't want to have to say, this is actually my fault. This is coming from my own heart. The response that I'm having in the middle of all these trials, this is my problem. And the way we defer that away from ourselves is we say, well, this is God's doing. Maybe you even heard people use this in situations where you think they said, well, God sent me this person into my life, and that's why I did what I did. I mean, it's, it's just the unbelievableness of this. But we all do this. And James is speaking to every single one of us, saying, this is where our hearts tend toward. This is the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the woman you gave to me. This is your fault, God. If you hadn't given me this woman, I would not have done what I did. But James counters this thinking and says, no one, God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. What does he mean by this? As I thought about it, I was in a bit of a knot trying to think through this. I thought this was this is a difficult passage to try and think about. And I think the best way I heard it explained was what John Calvin says. He says, For it is the devil who lures us to sin. And for this reason, because he wholly burns with the mad lust of sinning. But God does not desire what is evil. He is not, therefore, the author of doing evil in us. We can't blame God for tempting us to evil because God doesn't want that, and God doesn't want that for himself or for us. He does not desire us to fall into evil. So whatever comes about from the trials that were in our life, that's not, our, that's not God's doing. That's our doing. James wants to encourage us to endure through all these trials that we face in life and to have a kind of response in the middle of these trials and a hope to go through them. But he goes even further. He says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And this is where James leads us to our third point. God is good. Lest we have any doubt in our mind that the sin arises in us and leads us to this downward progression, being lured, enticed by our sin, and leading ultimately to death. Lest we have any doubt in our minds that maybe God is doing this. James says, no, in fact, it's the opposite. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's all from God. See, a person who thinks that God is tempting him to do evil has somehow believed a lie. They've bought into something that's not true. They've been deceived. And James counters that falsehood now by saying, no, here's what's true. All the good that you have in this world and in the world to come is from God. Do not be deceived about where good things come from. They do not come from you. They come from God. Satan doesn't want nothing less than for you to think, God isn't all good. 
Sometimes he causes evil. Sometimes he does evil. You can blame him for your failings. It's partially his fault. Remember, that's the Adam and Eve story. That's our story. And James says that every good gift and perfect gift, it's all the wonderful things. There's nothing imperfect in this. And he describes it this way, in a very interesting uh, poetic language. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why does he put it this way? He could have just said, Every good and perfect gift comes from God. But he says it in a very interesting way. The Father of lights, no variation of change or shifting shadow. He wants to root our confidence in where goodness comes in the midst of all of our trials and temptations in something that does not change. See, light, as he describes, that comes from God, light is pure, unadulterated, and brilliant. It gives to all men the ability to see, to understand, and to have clarity in this world. And what James tells us is this is coming from God. He emanates light, understanding, truth, purity. This is all coming directly from him. And if light is pure, if our eyes cannot even endure the blinding light of the sun in all its brilliance, how much less in the presence of God? How much more illuminating is God himself? How much more pure and overflowing and abundant goodness is God himself? He wants us to have absolute, utter confidence in his perfection in the midst of our trials. That God cannot and will not ever change. It's a very fancy theological term that we theologians like to use, is immutability. And maybe you say immutability? Well, mutability, think of mutants like we have in all of our TV shows and movies now. <laughs> they change. Immutable is something that doesn't change. Everything in this world changes. That's one thing that defines this creation. But James tells us that there is no variation no change in God. And for some people, they don't like this doctrine. They don't like this truth. And James shows us here very forcefully that there's nothing that changes about God. How is that good news for us? It's good news because if God is the Father of lights, who is pouring forth His goodness, you think of what our catechism says, He is, he is Himself wisdom, goodness, justice, holiness, and truth. That is not just coming from God. It's who He is. And He's saying, it does not change. None of this changes for God. It's always who He is. It's always how He acts towards all of His creatures. And it is an unshakable confidence for us to rest in, in the midst of all of the trials that we face in this life. Psalm 36 says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. There is no variation of shadow due to change in God. He is constant. And all goodness comes down from heaven to us from him. He does not want us to think that God is capricious or unpredictable. Satan wants us to think that. That the events in our life are just whimsical and unknowing, coming out of nowhere. While it may seem that way to us, James says, do not ever think that way about our Father, who is good and perfectly good. But if that wasn't enough, James goes on to a second way of showing us the goodness of God. He says this in verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The clearest display that we have of God's goodness is that he has redeemed us, and created us anew in Jesus Christ. Do you want any clearer evidence of the goodness of God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or change of shadow pouring out his goodness upon you? It's that he's called you his child. He has made you a son and heir in his kingdom. He brought us forth. He didn't just adopt us. He created us anew. We are new creations in this kingdom. That's what 2 Corinthians says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, and the new has come. It was God who brought this about by his goodness. And God has done this through the gospel that is proclaimed to us. The word of truth. It's a synonym in Scripture. The word of truth is the gospel that we all hear. The forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. First Peter puts it this way. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass reminder of earlier in this passage and it's glory like the flower of the grass and it's glory like the flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever it's constant unchanging immutable and this is the good news that's preached to us today that all who trust in Him, all who look in faith to God to guide them through the trials and tribulations of this life, who will reward us, He does reward them with eternal life because we look to Him in faith. Because we have our Savior Jesus Christ who has cleansed us of all of our sins and applied His righteousness to us so that we could enter into that kingdom. And this is the first fruits. We are this first fruits. In the words of one commentator, we are the most excellent parts 
of God's creation here today. Of all, I mean, we look out here at this beautiful scene, and it's amazing. It's crystal clear today. You know, the birds, the sky, the, the you know, you can it, the detail in the mountains. And God says, you want to know where my chief creation is right now? It's right here. You poor, you rich, you're all weak. Whoever you are, here today, you are God's creation. And when temptations and trials come, and they shake our confidence in who God is, and His goodness, when our health begins to fail, when friends and family around us turn against us, because we don't side with them on the political issues in the way that they want us to, when the coronavirus comes into our neighborhood, into our friends and family, and we wonder, where is God? Where is His goodness? James is bolstering our confidence in the goodness of God, that he is always with us, he has made us new, and he will always do what is right and good towards us. Do not lose heart, as Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction... I just think that's one of the most amazing words in all of Scripture. This light and momentary affliction <laughs> is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So remember, we're poor. We're weak. But we serve a God who is perfect in goodness. He is the Father of light, of all lights, the Heavenly Father, in whom there is no variation of shadow or shifting and change. And He is the one who will sustain us through all the trials, the tribulations, and temptations that you and I face in this life. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we rejoice that You are our Heavenly Father, and that we will one day join You in Heaven to perfectly enjoy the light of your countenance. And we pray that you would strengthen all of us in this season of life that seems to get more and more challenging with each passing week. That we would look to you and trust that you are our God, you are our Savior, and that we are part of your kingdom and your children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.